You're listening to Bell, Book, and Candle with Mela Borowski. Thoughts from a Southern Witch. Should have studied witchcraft. Should have learned to ride a broom. So me and my black cat could fly through the skies underneath the moon. and you're listening to Bell, Book, and Candle. Thanks for being here today. Y'all know that we don't always have guests that are witches, even though every one of our guests has something of value to share with us, but I'm always excited when we have a guest witch. Born remembering other magical lives, Jennifer Moore has been living as a witch and a practitioner of positive magic since she was a toddler, y'all. Always hungry for knowledge and spiritual connection, she began studying the craft, divination, and energy healing in her late teens. Bringing well over 30 years of experience, Jen merges practicality, intuition, and wisdom to offer insight, guidance, and emotional freedom to those she serves. She's an initiated Wiccan high priestess, a best-selling author, creator of tarot and oracle decks, founder of the Empathic Mastery Academy, and she holds a master's degree in psychology and religion. It is so great to have you. Merry meet, Jen. Merry meet. It is so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Mela. Absolutely. You've been practicing magic since you were a child. I think yep. a lot of witches may have had that experience even if they look back and recognize it but we don't always know what we're doing when we're that young. So I'd love to hear more about you growing up as a witch. Is that something that you knew you were doing when you were young or you look back and you see it happening? I knew, I mean, Mm. so I was really lucky in that I was raised in a family of agnostic sort of Uh, lapsed Catholics, uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) intellectual and intellectual atheists. And so, and where it was funny because sort of the traditional religion was not considered uh, acceptable, but mermaids and fairies and fairy tales and all of that was completely acceptable. So I had a grandmother who, if you said, do you believe in God? She'd say there is no God. But if you said, do you believe in mermaids? She'd be like, come on, let's go out into the, let's go, (laughs) let's go to the shore and go look in the rocks and find one. Oh, wow. And so I had a lot of encouragement for my imagination. And as a very little girl, I would like dress up and go outside and we had this big red plastic gardening bucket and I would just go and grab all these different plants and flowers and you know just blossoms and different things sometimes squashed bugs and (laughs) put them into this big red plastic bucket and then add some mud and some water and I was making these potions I was Mm -hmm. making medicine And I knew that I was being a witch. It just came very, very naturally. And I was very lucky in that I didn't have anybody telling me this isn't real, that, um, oh, it's all in your head, or there's no such thing as witches, or it's bad or evil or dangerous. And so I really had the opportunity to kind of let that natural instinct flourish even as a very small child. And then I got hired to be a witch for the very first time when I was in fourth grade. <laughs> oh, wow. I did. Oh. Yeah. So, so um, I, so there was this little, do you, I don't know if you guys, if you remember those books that were at like the five and dime, those tiny little pamphlets, you can still get them at the grocery store, like 10 tips for how to freeze your food better. But there was this 
one little <laughs> one that had a picture of a white Persian cat and some candles and a couple other things on the cover of it and it was like witchcraft and how to do it and it was like mm. 25 cents I had this friend this male friend who I had a fierce crush on he had a fierce crush on somebody else and so he hired me by buying me the book to cast a love <laughs> spell for him on this other girl. I really, I dodged, that was the first dip diplomatic dodging of something I've ever done because he had bought me the book and I read it. And then I came back and I said, I can't do this for you. If you're going to do a love spell, you're going to have to do it yourself. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't tell him it was a conflict of interest. Because right. I didn't, yeah, I didn't tell him that I had a crush on him, but I did basically sort of avoid it. So did he want a refund? Uh, no, he didn't. That's good. I also think now as I as I tell the story, every so often I dodge the man, like maybe he was like calling my bluff. Like maybe this was a mm. way to try to get me to be like, but I like you. Yeah. That in fourth grade, you don't know how to do those things. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. One of the areas that I'm involved in with some other people that I that I have in my kind of circle is witchy education for children. And I've even seen evidence in my own family. And now, you know, you have said it as well that children want to connect with nature. Mm -hmm. They want to know more about magic and they are experiencing the spiritual world far more these days than even when my children who are in their 20s now really did. So we want to give them freedom to follow their path, but we also want to give them experiences. So do you have any advice for someone who has a sensitive child or someone who is wanting to connect more to a witchy path that they can help them with? Well, there's actually, it's interesting that you refer to or you speak about um, advice for people with sensitive children, because that would actually be a slightly different piece of advice than how do we support our children in connecting with their magic. And so I, I'll respond first to the first piece of that, which is how do we support our sensitive empathic kids? And what I'll say is that what I have seen over and over again in working with a lot of highly sensitive empathic people is that invalidation is one of the most wounding things we go through. And so I think that when we have highly sensitive children, that even if we don't understand why they're feeling the way they're feeling, to validate that their emotions are real, that to validate that their experience is theirs, and that it's okay to be feeling these hard, intense emotions, and that it's okay to be picking up on stuff that's going on. And I think sometimes one of the best answers we can give somebody is, this is a totally understandable emotion. I, you know, or there, there's probably a really, or there's a really good reason for this. I just don't know what it is yet. And so you can sort of say, you know, I'm sure there's something going on here. I just don't know what it is. What do you think it is? And so just really giving our kids that acknowledgement of what they're picking up instead of what I imagine so many, I'm, I imagine you experienced it, I certainly did, mm -hmm. and I'm sure many listeners experienced was the, you're, you know, you're overreacting, you're being too sensitive, you're oh, taking yeah. it too personally, got an overactive imagination, you're making things up, you're making too big a deal out of it. And that, that is a wound that I see so many people carrying into adulthood. And what's so hard about it is that I think it makes them doubt themselves on a core level. And it's because when your instincts, which are spot on, 
are being denied and invalidated at a very, very young age, I think it makes it much, much harder to acknowledge, to trust those instincts as an adult. So that would be the first comment I would have. And the second comment is in terms of just bringing our kids into magic and nature. I really believe it's inherent. I believe that within all of us, we understand and know how to connect with the earth, how to talk with the plants, how to talk with the trees, well, the trees are plants, how to talk with the sky, how to talk with the birds, how to commune with nature. And it's the invalidation, so going back to that first comment, that I think <laughs> really stops us in our tracks and draws us away from our own known experience with the earth. And so it's almost like, I mean, aside from bring them outside and let them connect to nature and ask curious <laughs> questions, I think the most important thing we can do is not invalidate or shut down. I was thinking about an experience I had many, many years ago with my now like adult uh, goddess daughter when she was probably about four or five we were at a festival in in uh, western new york and it was right around saint john's wort well it was around the time where saint john's wort was blooming mm -hmm. and so i took her out into the fields at the age of like four or five and had her helping me pick the St. John's wort blossoms and drop them into a big jar of vodka. And what's really cool about it is when you're harvesting St. John's wort to make tincture and you drop it directly into the vodka, the vodka immediately turns red. It's mm. really spectacular. And I will say for anybody who's thinking about going out and foraging, if you are going to forage, please be mindful of not overpicking. Mm -hmm. Please really listen to the plants and only take a small amount because when we, when we take too much, we really compromise that e ecosystem. But anyway, <laughs> enough of my soapbox. <laughs> but that was an experience where it was creating a magical memory for her. It was an opportunity for us to talk about the plants, to talk about the mythology behind the plants, to talk about how to communicate with the plants and recognize which flowers wanted to come with us and which flowers didn't. And I know that this is a memory that she's been carrying around ever since. It was a way for her to learn something, but also to be empowered to step into her magic and touch the plants and go, yes, this blossom wants to go into that jar. <laughs> no, this blossom doesn't want to go into that jar. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. You mentioned being empathic. And I know that when I've read some of your material, you call yourself a former hot mess yep. and world-class awfulizer. Does that have anything to do with being an empath? In terms of being a hot mess, absolutely. In terms of being a world-class awfulizer, that has more to do with being born into a family of people who can imagine the worst case scenario and then double down on it, triple down on it, and <laughs> keep on going. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think that certainly when an empath so, so I'll just define for me what it means to be an empath is an empath is a person who not only can imagine what other people are going through or the pain or suffering and just intensity of the world around them, they feel it. And where somebody can have sympathy or even empathy for the world, where we can put ourselves in somebody's shoes, it's not the same as full immersion. And what I find for those of us who are highly sensitive and empathic to the point of being empaths 
is that there is this visceral immersion where we cannot necessarily distinguish between what's ours and what's coming from outside of ourselves. And what that often means is that what is going on in the world is experienced as if it's going on inside of us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for the long line of sensitive, intuitive people in my family line, awfulizing is a natural response to when you're sensing things coming down the pike, when you're feeling the distress in the world around you, but you don't have any words for it, you don't have any tools for it, and you don't, nobody's ever acknowledged that this could be coming from something outside of yourself. As a result, it's going to be really, really natural to start projecting possibilities into the future and imagining what it could be. And so awfulizing, I think, is in some ways a natural self-defense mechanism when we do not have the tools to recognize what's ours and what's not ours. That if we don't know that it's coming from something outside, a lot of times it means we're going to worry, we're going to project, we're going to be very, very concerned about things. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Is there a difference between being a highly sensitive person and being an empath, or is an empath a type of highly sensitive person? Where's the difference, or is there? So, you know, I mean, I've when I was writing my book, I started to do some, like, looking around and doing some research, and I think there's a certain amount of potato-potato, but what I will say is that in the sense, empathy and highly sensitive are on an absolute spectrum. And there are some people where being highly sensitive means that they're sensitive to light sound and like the tag on the back of their shirt, to, you know, electromagnetic frequencies, to, to food, to just sort of their environment. But they're not necessarily sensitive to the emotions that are mm -hmm. coming from the world around them. And what I find is for me, there's a certain aspect of for lack of a better word, paranormal awareness that I think empaths that really, you know, extreme empaths tend to have, where it's not just about picking up on the seen world and the environmental stuff and even the felt or the unspoken emotional charge that's going on in a community or in a room. But what I've seen with empaths is that they will pick up on the emotional, mental, energetic, dynamic, not sometimes, not just within a household or within a work situation or some, you know, within a school system or some kind of, you know, body of, of people that they're connected to, that sometimes it can be as, as wide as the entire planet where an empath is picking up all of the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations, the pain, the suffering mm -hmm. that's going on in the world around, you know, on the, on the planet or pieces of the planet. Right. And some empaths can be so sensitive that the, the distinction of time can even really start to break down. So there's sort of like picking up on the things, the echoes from the past and picking up on the ripples coming from the future. And so I would say that I think highly sensitive is an umbrella term that empathic or empath could fit under. And so I think of it as highly sensitive is a broader term that could simply describe somebody who's very sensitive to, you know, sensory stimulation. Mm -hmm. Whereas empath is really speaking about that immersion 
into just taking on and absorbing and picking up on all of all the feels. Okay, that's kind of how I see it as well. Yeah. As far as the turning point between you being in this hot mess situation and learning to find more peace in your life, where did that breakthrough come from? Well, I would say that for me, and I think I think this is really important, there was not necessarily one struck by lightning on my head and absolutely mm. everything got better for yeah. my entire, you know, like, bam, one day I'm a hot mess <laughs> and the next day I'm like, you know, superwoman. Yeah. For me, it has been a series of gradual, incremental, step-by-step changes where in time, I can look back and see a number of pivots in my life and a number of corners turned. But at the time, I may or may not have necessarily understood the ramifications of that. But I will say that one of the most significant shifts in my life came when I was in my early 20s and I first quit smoking in January and ended up basically because it was my main coping tool I put on 40 pounds in six months by July I was absolutely on my knees like admitting defeat and you know literally I mean my knees were really sore hurting from that extra 40 pounds so even going up and down the stairs at like the age of 23 was hard one of the biggest pivots in my life was when I when I found out and learned that sugar was a drug that was making me much more sensitive, that was really impacting the way that I was perceiving the world, and that it was causing a lot of the agony that I was in, both not only mentally around struggling with food cravings and, you know, like grabbing a Cadbury bar, taking a chunk of it, wrapping it up in aluminum foil and throwing it into the back of the freezer and then coming back and getting another, you know, coming back and getting, (laughs) getting it back out of the freezer 15 minutes later until the whole thing was done. That there was not only was there that, but there was also the way that it was, it, it was really clouding my sense of the world and affecting my mood deeply. And so for me, choosing to abstain from sugar was one of the most important things and one of the biggest turning points in my life. So in a way, it was like deciding to quit smoking, which was the choice to take care of myself, led me to abstaining from processed sugar. And that was the point where my journey into personal healing and recovery really began. Because before that, all I could do was put out fires. That must have been very difficult to cut sugar out. Can I use use that salty language with you? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, it sucked. It was, <laughs> it was, you know, the thing is, if anybody, it's like going through sugar withdrawal is about two and a half, three weeks of just sheer hell. Oh. And because, and, and the reason for that, in my experience, is because when we have a lot of sugar in our system, we also tend to have a lot of yeast in our system. And the yeast overgrowth in our system really wants to survive. And so it likes to be fed a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of sugar to survive. And when we stop eating it and we start starving it out, it's like an animal that will chew its paw off to get out of the trap. And the cravings, the hungry horrors are absolutely unbearable. But 
the thing is that even though the cravings are lousy and I always sort of felt when I was putting down sugar, because I'll be honest, I've put it down more than once in my life. I've had a couple of times mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, I can have this. It's not such a big deal. <laughs> and I will also clarify that I did not, not the first time that I gave up sugar, but the, the successive times, I have chosen very deliberately to not eliminate chocolate from my diet. So mm-hmm. being very conscious that there's a distinction between high quality, low sugar or uh, alternative sweetened chocolate and you know and the rest of all of the other sweets and so Mm -hmm. I knew that it was sort of like if I was going to pick my battles giving up processed sugar was more important (laughs) yeah but it's not I won't lie it's not necessarily an easy thing and especially if we don't have any coping tools you know the Mm -hmm. first time I gave it up I was just white knuckling my way through it I didn't Mm -hmm. really have resources and you know, I recently I've been working with somebody who's really struggling with uh, with her own sugar cravings, and you know, I think she'd honestly acknowledge it as a sugar addiction. And you know, with a with very magical, very creative, a remarkable person with also a lot of family history and a lot of you know a lot of stuff that's happened in the past. And what we've talked about is like, in order for it to be safe to let this go there has to be something in its place. There yes. has to be some way to take care of ourselves. Mm. You know, I would say that learning, finding better alternatives is a much better way to go about letting something like sugar go than just trying to cold turkey and white knuckle our way through it. And having done both the white knuckling cold turkey just giving it up and just sort of like just by sheer force of will stopping you know I will say it's much easier when we have tools and I will also say that even though the withdrawal takes a couple weeks to get through the clarity and the mood lift and the starting to not feel like we are in a glass half empty or a dark glass half empty Mm -hmm really starts to lift much earlier than the physical cravings completely release and so Mm -hmm. there's like it starts you start feeling lighter you start feeling less pain or I started feeling lighter I started feeling less pain in my joints I started feeling less bloated I started waking up feeling more energized and more optimistic and more hopeful so it is one of those things where I, I believe that it is absolutely worth it, but it is definitely something where you got to keep your eyes on the prize because it is in the short term, sugar makes us, at least me, makes me feel really happy and blissed out and just kind of like it takes away all of the yuckiness of the world for a few minutes. My problem is that after, after that sugar high dissolves, then the crash is brutal and that's where the awfulizing really comes in which Mm. interestingly sugar addiction is something that runs i grew up with a mom who hid sugar from us because she was so her relationship with sugar was so fraught and strange so Mm. i i do believe that sugar really contributes to awfulizing as well as well as being a hot mess I love that you mentioned if you're going to remove something from your life, even sugar or really anything, that you have to have a replacement for it. Because in in my work doing hypnosis with people and that sort of thing, I had a client who was 
even trying to quit biting their nails. And even with that, I said, okay, and what are you going to do instead? When Mm -hmm. you, when you're going to bite your nails, what are you going to do? And he decided to learn to do coin tricks and just do coin tricks with his fingers. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So you have to kind of think through, but you do have to replace it. Otherwise it's going to be very easy for it to come back. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Well, and there's also so often you know, um, all kinds of stuff under the hood that's making us do these things. And if we're not prepared, if we don't have tools to deal with these things, then it's very understandable that we're just going to go back, that we're just going to pick it up because it's a solution that has been working, not necessarily perfectly, but at least it's a solution that has worked for us to the, you know, better than anything else we've found. And it's funny you mentioned nail biting because there was one, one many years ago, somebody came to me specifically to work on, on their issues around nail biting. And I kind of figured, oh, nail biting, not a big deal. It'll probably be fairly easy to address, the, address and clear this. <laughs> and what was really interesting was that it was so complicated. It was such a complex issue. And it tied into ancestral and multi-generational traumatic events around health and other traumatic stuff and and it was sort of like oh wow (laughs) like this is if if this is like the veneer that is covering all of that other stuff no wonder you're biting (laughs) your nails yeah yeah from my own experience i spent over half my life i'm almost 50 of just being this sponge absorbing all the shit from the world and the people around me. And I really think that that played a part in breaking down my physical and emotional health. And I've Mm -hmm. had a lot of issues that I had to overcome. How can empaths and maybe even other highly sensitive people, or maybe you just want to speak on empaths, but how can you hold back that barrage in a sense without becoming overwhelmed or even sick like I got earlier in my life? That is the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) I'm just trying to think if there's any way I can give you a fairly short answer. And I guess what I would say is the fairly short answer in some ways is that there is no easy answer to this. Mm. That one of the things that I have seen as being a really big problem is that a lot of people try to one, control their sensitivity. They try to suppress their sensitivity. They try to lock it down. Mm. They try to block it. And in the same way that, you know, it's like if you've ever had a piece of contact paper that, you know, that stuff that you put on shelves and surfaces and everything, you know, would be a piece, yeah. And it's like there's one air bubble in it and you just (laughs) want that air bubble to go away. And no matter what you do, you just chase it around, but it never flattens and it never goes away. And I think the thing about being highly sensitive is that attempting to suppress or control it only adds pressure to it, but it doesn't make it go away. And when it does, when it does rear its head, it will manifest as physical health issues. It will show up as emotional health issues. It will show up as like, I just can't handle this anymore. You know, then there's sort of like the whole kind of new agey magical world of like, just put a bubble of light up around it, send love and light to it, practice forgiveness. And, you know, the thing is, the way I look at it is that if you're carrying around negative emotions, if you're already carrying around pain, if you're already carrying around grief and fear and anger and suffering inside of you, putting a ball of light up around you is not going to cut it. 
it's kind of like if somebody was in the shower and they had put, you know, and they'd stopped up the drain and they had washed off just all this filth in the shower, but they didn't pull the drain and then they step out of the shower and then just pull the shower curtain around it, there is still a stinky mess, filthy, stinky mess in that shower that has not been addressed. And so what I have found is that when it comes to our empathic safety and our our ability to be thriving as empaths as opposed to really just struggling with taking on all the thoughts, feelings, energy, pain of the world, that what we need to do first is recognize that there is actually something even going on. And there's two components. This is the first step of empathic mastery is the first step is like recognize. And that means first just even recognizing that we're in a state of distress. And then from that recognizing that we're feeling something, it's being able to start recognizing what's mine, what's not mine. What am I taking on? And how much of this do I need to be taking on? The second step is release, the ability to release the things that we do not need to be carrying around. Mm -hmm. And I will say that that was a a hard one lesson for me in that when people used to say to me, oh, Jen, just let it go. I'd be like, what the ever loving F do you even mean (laughs) by let it go? You're, you gotta be kidding me, right? Let it go. If it was that easy, (laughs) I would have. And so over the years, I have learned a lot about how to let it go as somebody who has been a white knuckling hot mess. Mm. And so I will say, even for those of us who really have a hard time letting go, there are tools like tapping EFT, emotional freedom techniques, which really make it much easier to let go. And so from, and there's also, you know, magical ritual ways of releasing things, grounding, using breath work, using body work, using flower essences. I mean, the list is almost Mm -hmm. endless. But from release, then the third step is protect. And that's when we start working on our filters and shields and creating a better, a better protective system so that we're not just taking on everything that's coming in from the world around us, Hmm. as well as creating strategic boundaries, because some of the boundaries around energy, some of the boundaries are about just basically saying, no, (laughs) you are not going to be walking into my house without a mask on and engaging with my toddler when you you just went to the bar (laughs) yesterday. Like, there's it's there's boundaries and yeah. so in order to really effectively protect ourselves we don't just need the psychic shields we also need the ability to set limits and boundaries and protect and protect mm. our reality and then beyond that is the fourth step which is connect because the universe pours a, va- a vacuum so when we're connecting to divine source there's less room for all of that other stuff to mm-hmm. take purchase inside of us. And finally, the last step of empathic mastery is act, which is all about living in the world in a really different way than we did before. Obviously, as I was saying, this is the million dollar question. <laughs> this is a process and yeah. it's a process of learning to recognize uh, just and, and to know ourselves and to be willing to sit with our wounds to sit with our hurt to sit with our pain and to and to really love our way love ourselves through this and you have a book called empath i do empathic mastery yes okay yeah 
And how do we find that book? You can find that book by going to empathicmasterybook.com. I make it really easy. Wonderful. I really think it's interesting that so many empaths and highly sensitive people are pulled to the pagan Mm -hmm. path. I know that a lot of people who are listening are empaths because they have told me that. I know for myself, I actually find healing in nature, in water, around the trees. Why do you think empaths are drawn towards this particular spiritual path? Well, I think for one thing, it's one of the few paths that validates what we are, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is one of the few places where you don't have to fight, Mm -hmm. where people rarely say, you're making it up. That's all in your head. Like within our belief system is the understanding of the interconnection of all things, is the understanding of the fact of the sentience of life outside of the human head. I think that's a really big reason for why so many sensitives are drawn to the pagan earth-centered magical path is because it is a path that validates and acknowledges and recognizes what we are, what we know, and so we don't have to continuously, constantly fight for ourselves with it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So when I was looking over your information, I saw that you could talk about the witch wound. Can you tell us what the witch wound is? I ran across this term a couple, actually a number of years ago now, and I was like, somebody finally named it. (laughs) I would be willing to bet that every single person, regardless of gender, listening to this podcast who has identified as a magical practitioner, as a witch, probably knows exactly what we're talking about. And what technically, what the witch wound is, is it's the memory, it's the legacy, it's the awareness of the annihilation of so many of us in other times and, you know, in in past history, whether it's ancestral or our own past lives, where we've been persecuted, where we've been deeply harmed by being magical people, by being people in, you know, by speaking out, by standing up, by stepping forward. And Europe went through a massive, massive period of genocide that we often don't acknowledge. And I actually believe that not only do we carry the witch wound individually, which often affects our ability to feel safe stepping out into the world, making it feel really dangerous to be too visible because you know it feels like a life or death issue. It also affects our ability to take risks, to, to step into our power, to step into our authority, and often even to practice magic, to express ourselves, to worship as we wish because the consequences were so incredibly dire. But I actually believe that the witch wound not just affects us individually, but it affects us systematically, systemically, especially those of us with European descent, because there was a period of time where there were villages where there was not one single woman left alive. Mm -hmm. Just think about the magnitude of that. And what that means is that everybody who was involved in that, even the persecutors, were being traumatized beyond anything we can imagine. And 
What that has done is that as an entire culture, Europe shut down that magical connection to the earth and shut things down. They kind of went sideways. The Blessed Mother, the worship of Mary, and the worship of saints became kind of the encoded secret way to do this. But the thing was, the damage was really profoundly done. And that systemic annihilation, I believe, is what is now manifested as white supremacy, as manifested as our disconnection from other people, because we were forced to disconnect from our felt sense of magical, wondrous possibility. I'm just sort of sitting as I'm saying this and just like, just thinking about the damage that that did. And I wanted to comment that more and more, there's more research that's being, that's coming out that is finding that trauma is passed down genetically in our DNA. That if an event happens, it gets carried forward. And so we carry that pain and that fear and that legacy in our DNA. It's almost inescapable. Yeah, that is so much great information. I think that's so interesting that they see trauma as traveling in the DNA because I've always just had this belief that you can access your Akashic records Mm -hmm. in the DNA. And that's how I go about it when I do past life regression with people is we're going to access the Akashic records that you carry inside of you. Mm -hmm. So that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Wow, I'm just kind of taking that in because I, I can see it in so many people. I can see it in myself. I've had experiences where I can, you know, when you were talking, I was like, yes, that's what was going on with this person. Because several years ago, I started doing community full moon ceremonies. It's been about three years now. Every single month I did them and I did them outside of a business down in uh, West Columbia. And I had someone that I respected, an older witch who said, you cannot do this. You cannot hold these community ceremonies. Someone's going to come get hurt. People are going to get hurt. You cannot do this because she just so strongly believed that. And here I was saying, no, we have got to step out of the shadows. But when I look back, I can, I can see what you were talking about. And she probably was carrying this really deep witch wound of, of fear and everything that she did her entire life she did in secret. Yes, yes. Well, and if you look at even sort of 20, 30, 40 years ago, what people were being, there was so much more secrecy within the world of, of, of magic. The pagan path was a lot more shut down and secret. I mean, I think about when I was in my 20s and I would wear a pentagram or a pentacle around my neck, and that was radical, you know, yeah. and it was scary because it you know and yet there was also this kind of magical sort of thing where it was like you kind of had that you know like nudge nudge wink wink when you ran across somebody else wearing the star around their neck too and just that feeling of like oh you're you're one of us like you're part of this and yet that secrecy is not only something that i think is deeply felt about that and the level of of fear of persecution and the danger but it also was even um, sort of has been encoded into many of the more traditional Wiccan initiatory paths mm-hmm. where upon fear of death, I do not share these secrets with anybody. Yeah. 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 
What are some things that people can get involved in? I'm, I'm already thinking ancestral lineage healing, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. What can people do carrying this witch wound to, to bring healing? So I think the first step with addressing and healing the witch wound is first off just, you know, that recognized step mm-hmm. of acknowledging it, you know, recognizing the way that it's been rippling out in our life and the way that it's been deeply affecting us. And just starting there and being so loving and gentle with ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then working either, and, and this would be something where, you know, maybe somebody has the, the skills to DIY through the healing process themselves. But I know for myself that this has been, it's been really helpful to work with other practitioners mm-hmm. where um, they are able to give me that support in a way that, and, and they can, you know, sort of there's a saying, you can't see the label from the inside of the jar, but <laughs> it's also, they're not immersed in, in it. So I find that working with other people to address this has been really, really helpful. And so doing past life work as well as ancestral healing work, and a couple tools that I personally really love is using EFT, emotional freedom techniques, the umbrella term for the broader concept is called tapping. And that has been, I mean, I have cleared so many past life memories as well as ancestral things and my own personal fear of success and visibility and yada, 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 and just really working with all of that. So tapping EFT is an amazing tool, finding a good practitioner. Also, I'm a really big fan of emotion code for doing this kind of work too, which is another tool for working through trapped emotions and moving them both from an inherited place, from a, you know, from a reincarnation place, from a, a sort of family systems place. There's a lot of different ways to work with it. And then as you were mentioning, you do hypnotherapy. And again, this is another place where we get to go in and we get to reboot the operating system and shift things and change things. There's also working with flower essences. There is working with movement. There is working with breath work. There are so many different modalities and ways. So I would say the first step is acknowledgement. And then the second Mm -hmm. step is getting some support and help to release these things. And then the third step starts to be anchoring in the new possibilities of what could be possible, what could be different, how could I approach this in a whole new way. Mm. Yeah, That's incredible, yeah. I'm not familiar with Emotion Code, I'll have to look into that, but tapping, I love tapping. In fact, I'm teaching a class downtown on tapping for mind, body, and spirit tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I've used it for so many things in my life and I use it in my practice with my clients and everything. It has been life-changing for me. I mean, it it was so life-changing for me that I actually became a master trainer for EFT International <laughs> because That's I amazing. love it so much. So I actually, I was like, I want other people to know how to do this. So I actually teach other people how to become practitioners because it is just it's the best thing since sliced bread. And it's amazing. It really is. I will say though, that like many other people, it felt really weird when I first started doing it because it involves tapping on your face and tapping under your arms and doing these other things that can seem a little strange. (laughs) So I'll just say, if it looks really weird, please suspend disbelief and try it anyway, because it really 
really, really can be like, it can make such a huge difference. I just really, I mean, I've been able to deal with food sensitivities through tapping. I've been able to deal with physical pain through tapping. I've been able to deal with a bunch of different relationship stuff through tapping. I've done some work with a number of people post COVID vaccine where I just, we've worked together on alleviating symptoms and just, you know, half hour, 15 minutes, half hour of tapping has alleviated symptoms that other people were like, you know, bed, you know, bedridden for 48 hours. It's a powerful modality. It is such a powerful modality. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. It's so good. Yeah. I've used it to maintain pretty much a migraine free life for years now. I'll start seeing the little C shape. If anyone has migraines, they know what I'm talking about in my eye. And I immediately start tapping, Mm -hmm. even if I have to get someone else to drive the car or whatever, and it will go away. And I have not had it go to a full blown migraine in years. Mm. Oh, that is just, that is music to my ears. Mm. And, and I just, I love all of the miracles that come with tapping. I, I started, one of the things that really drew me to it, aside from Actually, I mean, my sort of what really convinced me that it worked was driving through an ice storm and going from a 10 of, oh my God, we're going to die to, yeah, I was like zeroed out. (laughs) I was like, yeah, we could die. Okay, whatever. (laughs) And I mean, I had been carrying around stress and trauma around car accidents since I was really young. And this was the first time that I felt relief. But when I was first learning to tap two, I discovered that it was really good for my food sensitivities because it used to be that every time I'd eat, I'd sneeze. Like I'd finish eating and I would go into these sneezing jags and I would just start, so I started just tapping. As soon as I started to sneeze or have a sniffle, I would start tapping and something that would have lasted or made me feel logy and out of it for an entire night after having a meal or an entire afternoon, I could tap on it and within five, 10 minutes, I was fine. So I just love how, especially when you can see sort of the edges of something coming at you, that you can use tapping as a way to work your way, work through it and around it. I think I've done it for so many years now that I don't, in some situations, I don't have to say any words, Mm -mm. just the action of touching in those spots will calm me down. I'll do it when my husband's driving. I always tell people about this story. He gets so upset when he sees me start to tap when he's driving because he is like, stop that. I'm not driving bad. But it calms me down so much just doing the tapping. So something that I've discovered is that if you're in a situation where you are, you know, tapping, the doing the full round of tapping, you know, facial and body torso tapping doesn't necessarily make sense. I really like to hug the triple warmer, also known as the gamut point. So I'll take the three fingers, my three dominant hand fingers, which I'm right-handed, so my right index finger, my middle finger, and my ring finger, and then I just wrap and, and the base of my palm, I sort of put it up against the side of my pinky finger or on the palm by, by the pinky finger of my other hand, my left hand, and then wrap those three fingers into the groove between my pinky finger and my ring finger on the top of my hand. 
and just hug that. That's the triple warmer or the triple heater in acupuncture. It's also in, in, in EFT, it's known as the gamut point. But I find that just hugging that point and breathing, I have gotten through a colonoscopy with mm. no versed, like not, not, being, not being put out. Like I stayed conscious through a colonoscopy with a little bit of pain meds, but mostly just hugging the gamut point. I have had my teeth cleaned numerous times as well as having some dental work done. Again, just hugging the gamut point. It doesn't completely make it go away. It's not like I'm numbed out, but it takes mm -hmm. the edge off enough that I can get through these kinds of things fairly easily. And so that's one, one sort of stealth tapping option. Another one is tapping on the sides of our nail beds, sort of tapping on our fingertips or squeezing mm -hmm. our fingertips and kind of, you know, taking your, your dominant hand, thumb and index finger and just sort of squeezing on either side of the nail bed and just kind of rocking it, kind of rotating it. These are really great ways to get ours to get the benefits of tapping without necessarily doing a full round i never knew that that was anything and i've done that my whole life mm -hmm. just kind of tapping on the side of my fingers just as a a calming technique so yeah. that's really interesting yeah isn't it cool <laughs> that whole thing of like see kids already know yeah that intuition coming out yeah well, this has been an incredible conversation. I really appreciate you being here, Jen. Oh, it has been such a pleasure. This has been a great conversation. I mean, we, I'm sure you and I could have talked for hours more. Oh, there were absolutely. So many different <laughs> rabbit holes. And I was like, oh, we could go there. We could go there. We could go there. You'll have to come back another time. It would and be we'll a have delight. to have another conversation. Yeah. Tell us uh, how to reach out. You've told us about how to find your book, but do you have a website for I yourself? I do have a website. I do. And that is empathicmastery.com. And if you're interested in learning more about becoming an EFT instructor, eftinstruction.com. So, but empathicmastery.com is where you can find absolutely everything that will lead you to the world of Jen. All right, y'all yeah. check out Jen's website, everything she has to offer, because there's just so much there. And I think you're gonna be really happy when you go and you see all that. I would also be interested in hearing what our listeners think about this episode. So remember, if you go to our podcast website, you can comment on this episode with your thoughts and questions. You can even click that little microphone and send me a voice message, and I might just use it on a future episode. And I also want to remind you to mark your calendars for November 13th, 2020. Because our first virtual witchy day long conference will be taking place, and you are invited. You can find out information about the Green Wild Festival for Witches and Mystics on the link I've provided, and I hope you'll join me there. Take care, and y'all be blessed. Thank you all for listening to Bell Book and Candle. You can follow Mella on Instagram and Facebook at Bell Book Candle SC. That's Bell, B-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. Or become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bell Book Candle.